1: Today's guest, Vivian Timmermans, will be well known to many of our listeners. At the age of 17, Vivian was an Australian champion figure roller skater raised in Inala, Brisbane. She was young, ambitious, and had big plans for her life. Around the same time, she discovered she was pregnant, and her daughter was placed for adoption in 1980. Vivian wrote a book about her experience titled, You Named Me, Cherie, and she speaks about it at public events. She also uses her wisdom to help other mothers who have lost children to adoption through a support group she founded called You Gave Me A Voice. Welcome to Adopt Perspective, Vivian. We are so happy to have you join us. Oh, thank you so much, Jo, and, and thank you for inviting me to for this opportunity today. Vivian, I've got some really important questions to get out of the way before we begin, because Mm -hmm. I also grew up from about the age of 12 in Anala and went to Richlands High, where Mm -hmm. I met my husband and all of my closest friends who are still in my life today. And Mm -hmm. I have to know, did you do your roller skate training at the Anala Skate Rink?
0: I sure did. I spent many
1: hours most of my young life there.
0: So to give you an idea, I used to wake up at 4am in the morning and ride my push bike down to the skating rink and train. And then I would go to school, primary school, and then come home and then ride my push bike again and train. And I did the same thing when I also went to high school. So it was a huge part of my life and it it was a great escape for
1: me, the skating rink yeah would have been and i was actually blown away when i was reading your book about Mm. some of the similarities of our lives and Mm -hmm. um there's only five years between us and there are so many crossovers of experience and facts and even some familiarities in the way that we think But one Mm -hmm. of the coolest things that was um, a similarity was that my father-in-law, who's now passed away, was also a champion roller figure skater in his teens Mm -hmm. and did his training in the same ring. And I've got Mm -hmm. a photo of him for you. I'm just showing this to Vivian now of him in his heyday in his roller skating gear, which I didn't even know until recently that he did that because that's just so not what I expected of him. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But um, So that's just crazy. But enough of enough of all that Anala yeah. uh, clearly holds for both of us some of the mystique of our youth and some fond memories yes but another truth is that in our era Anala was also a low socioeconomic era uh, area with a lot of mm-hmm. public housing and there were serious and multi-generational social issues simmering in the background of many families including domestic violence drug and alcohol and gambling addictions high rates of crime etc mm-hmm. uh can you set the scene for us of your life in Anala prior to discovering you were pregnant? What was childhood like for you? Sure. Um, just a little bit back with our
0: connection and similarities, mm. um, It is really, it really is a small world and this is the whole reason why I write my book is because um, I just wanted to share my journey and because it being an Australian story and I just wanted to be able to to particularly actually, you've blown me away a little bit too, um, connect with other mothers and to actually connect to someone who's actually been adopted is actually quite um humbling as well. Um, so yeah, I'm just happy with, you know, my my story adanala. And also it gets even smaller, Joe, because I actually wanted there's a young girl I used to go to primary school with and we were very, very good friends in primary school and it turns out that she actually is an adoptee and I met her at an, an apology. So uh, it just goes to show how small a world is and Anala, because she has roots there as well.
1: Yeah, sure um,
0: is. Life in Anala. my my parents actually owned their home in Anala. And I grew up in an abusive home life, like mentally and physically. And I worked in the Brisbane city doing admin, administration. So by the time I was roughly about 19, I actually left Inala. So, you know, a lot of my youth was there. I made the best that I could. And it was actually a pretty good community, regardless of being low socioeconomic. I found as people sort of watched out for each other. And you knew your neighbours in those days, I guess.
1: Yeah, I've I've found the same thing. And my mum's yeah. only just recently moved. We were in Housing Commission House, and yeah. my father passed away last year. And she moved to Corinda, and still mm. all of her old neighbours and friends come to visit her now in her new home. Which is mm. it's a really strong community. Yeah, one hundred percent. Like we still have friends even
0: today that we. It's the Anala group. We get together mm. once a year.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. Vivian, can you tell us about your pregnancy and what led up to your baby being placed for adoption? Yeah, sure. Um, As you spoke about earlier,
0: I was the Australian champion roller skater, artistic roller skater. And of course, I was a little bit popular, I guess, at at the skating rink. And I, I met a boy who was Mr. Popular. Anyway, as hormones have it, And you find yourself in tricky situations. I ended up falling pregnant, but also I wasn't in a relationship with this young man. So I found myself being a single mum and I didn't want to be a single mum in Anala. I had ambition. So my home life was not ideal. I lived in an abusive home. So bringing a baby back to that home was not an option for me. And also we didn't have the help, like we didn't have the housing help and the electricity help and, you know, you didn't have single mother pension. You had really nothing in those days. However, in the last few years I have found or heard and realised that there was a child endowment, I think they called it back then, but I think it was like $4 a week or something, you know, like I just was not in the place to you know look after her on my own and also I my mother was Catholic and you know a baby had a mother and a father and you had to be married and you know that whole stigma that went with it back in those days and the shame that it brought to the family so I was actually pregnant for eight and a half months without my parents even knowing so you know my mother had two weeks notice and I go more into that in, in my book and it's a part of the you know the secrecy and the shame and the silence thing that surrounds us.
1: Yeah and um, I can really understand what you're saying because I think it was 1988 when I left high school and I started my first year at university and um, I was doing a humanities course and one of the lecturers there was talking about differences in socioeconomic areas and she proceeded Mm -hmm. to show a video two videos one of them was a shopping center at Kenmore and so she sort of was scanning around you know BMWs and nice houses Mm -hmm. and nice you know people walking around in all dressed nicely and then she Mm -hmm. showed a video of my local shopping center the civic center yeah she focused that camera on people who looked like they were drug or alcohol affected um Mm -hmm single well you didn't know they were single mums but it kind of gave that look you know impression um, yeah yeah you know and um and I was really embarrassed in that and and angry at that time because most of the kids who were sitting next to me did not come from those areas like it was not expected that we would go to uni back then from yep. our area. That's right. And um and I was you know it actually put me off and it wasn't long after that I actually quit uni for the first time. Um, Because I didn't feel like I belonged to that, and so that stigma Mm -hmm. that still lagged from, Mm -hmm. you know, the '70s and '60s about Mm -hmm. being a single parent was huge, and particularly in our area. Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
0: And I also found, um, yeah, it was before I was pregnant. I used to go to job interviews in Brisbane City, and they and whoever was interviewing me'd say, "Oh, you went to Annala High School?" I go, "Yes, I did." Then they go, "Well, thank you for coming, and just give me my resume back." Yeah. So I ended up saying that I came from Oxy South. <laughs> yeah.
1: This is crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so you were saying that your um, parents didn't know that you were pregnant until you're eight and a half months pregnant. So that must have mm. been um, quite a shock at the time. Like, mm. how how did it play out when they did find out?
0: Yeah, it was just a shock. Unbelievable. I, I think the shock was because I used to um, read my mother's medi- medical book, mm. um, her medical encyclopedia, and she was a nurse also. And so I knew where I was up to, where I thought in my pregnancy. And then when it got really close and see, I used to think, oh, no, I'm not pregnant. Oh, yes, I am. And it's a part of it. You know, I was 16 years old, you know, the maturity level's not that high at that age in that era. And I thought it would go away. Yeah. Yeah, but it didn't go away and baby just kept growing. So I got to a stage where I thought, oh, I'm going to have to tell him because I think I'm close to having this baby. But I also armed myself. I told myself I was giving this baby up for adoption anyway. So this brings me to uh, something that we can chat about later too, if you like, is I feel like that I was at the end of the forced adoption era the formal forced adoption era so in 1980 I guess I was forced in a sense because I wasn't given the right information I wasn't given the right counseling and I wasn't given the right choices and my paperwork wasn't correct so there's a whole lot of other things behind the scene where I can actually relate to the forced adopted generation yeah
1: yeah yeah and so a lot of um mothers were not allowed to see or hold their babies after Mm. they were were born what was your experience
0: Um, for me I wasn't allowed to see her it I was actually I had my I had my baby in the Royal Brisbane Hospital and I was put into a room I call it a dungeon I don't know why I just believe it was like in a room downstairs I was all by myself my legs were in stirrups most of the times I was left by myself, um, my legs were shaking and then when baby was born I had a pillow put over my head so I wouldn't see baby. Also they put a, a white sheet in front of, you know, like your legs so you can't see over and you can't see baby coming out and they just, when baby was born, they just took baby and and off she went to the baby's room. And I was put into my room and I was there for a week and it was on the last day, a young nurse came down to me and she said, would you like to, you know, see a baby? And she said, I know you're not supposed to, but I'll take you up there. And and I'll always be forever grateful for that because I was, I was able to kiss her on her forehead and look at her fingers and look at her toes and and wish her well, and just pray that she had a good life. Yeah,
1: and that is important because I mean, having that sheet up, it would be just such a disconnect. Like you physically know something is happening, but you're not seeing it happening. Yeah. Like, yeah,
0: and in in those days too, we didn't have tablets to dry up the milk; they used to bind you.
1: Mm.
0: So it was just you know things like that.
1: Yeah, um, I'm yeah. so sorry.
0: That's okay. And I also had the option of naming her. So I feel very lucky because there are a lot of women before me who couldn't name their babies. So I wasn't... I believed that I didn't have a right to name her. So they named... So I'm frantically looking through magazines and I found a name that I liked and it was called Cherie. So... And this is how when i did get the phone call from her she, you know i was thinking this can't be true and she said well and i said to her what did i name you and she said you named me Cherie," so hence the the name of my book yeah yeah
1: <sighs> let's take a deep breath <laughs> yeah <laughs> there was a 6 week cooling off period after your daughter was born during which yep. you could change your mind can you tell us about this the 6 weeks cooling off uh i was told
0: cuz i did have thoughts i wanted to keep her of course you do after after the the birth and then when i asked the authorities about that well vivian We've already given that baby to the parents and how would they feel if we then had to take her back, which was a lie because when we reunited, her adopted mother told me she picked her up from foster home. I was furious. I was absolutely, it's still, it's still something that I I deal with. Yeah. You know, the fact that she was sent to foster care. And that, and that threat was put on me, you know, like because I played that in my mind I went, oh, you know, how am I going to, you know, like, oh, okay, then we'll, you know, she, I know she's better off with them because she has a mother and a father, you know.
1: So you were at home when the phone call came mm-hmm. to check yeah. whether or not yeah. you had changed your mind. Can you tell us yeah. about that?
0: Yeah. Well, um, I was living with my parents and I was actually locked in my bedroom. So when that phone call came along, I was there was no option for me yeah yeah that choice was taken away yeah um in my uh parents my mother's defense she was actually told and advised by the nurses that this was the best thing to do so she was you know there was a lot going in her mind too i mean it was her grandchild however that's just how it played out
1: yeah so what was life like for you following your daughter's adoption? Um, you could say, I was self-destructive.
0: I was alcohol drugs. didn't really give a rat about anybody. I, I looking back as a mature adult now, I was I was broken. You know, I needed help, and there was no counseling, nothing.
1: you didn't have anyone contact you after that no no it was all hushed up not allowed
0: to speak about it and um you know even when it was her birthday I'd say to my mother oh it's Cherie's birthday today is it and then that was it and I guess that's how she coped that was that generation don't talk about it don't get hurt doesn't exist don't acknowledge it so
1: just move yeah. on and get on with your just life move
0: on and that's what I was told now Vivian all you have to do is just go to work and keep continue on life is normal yeah <laughs> what a joke yeah but I believed it I believed I could yeah I got to a stage where um and I do write this in the book that I was sitting in the river along the river one day and a butterfly flew on my head. And I realised that I was just sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. I was probably about 22, 23. And I thought if I don't let this go, I'm either going to like be very sick, like get cancer or, you know, something like that, or I'll commit suicide or I can deal with this and turn it into good because I believed, because I really struggled with faith too at the time. And I kept telling myself over the years, okay, this has happened to me for a reason, so I'm going to turn this into good. And that's when I decided when I was strong enough
1: and mature enough to start our support group. You initially placed um, a veto on your daughter contacting you. Um, For anyone Mm -hmm. who doesn't know, that's um, a block, I guess, from um, being contacted from someone getting your identifying information. Mm -hmm. What led you to make that decision?
0: well I wasn't I believe that my child well my daughter could contact me anytime so I'm thinking oh god could you imagine 14 15 16 year old knocking on your door like some crazy wild child like I was you know so I thought I have to have a veto you know like I'm not ready for that um um, I've and and I've told adoptees and I've told other mums I would never ever have looked for my daughter because it was so heartbreaking giving her up and then to actually look for her and then her say I don't want to know you would be would be devastating for me so when it came time to lift the veto I thought well she's she's 18 now She's gone through that really kind of difficult stage. So maybe if she wants, I'll lift the veto. So I lifted it. And then six weeks later, she rang me. Wow. So is there anything that prompted you to lift that veto? Yes. Yeah. And it's and I call it, it's my April Winfrey moment and your light bulb (laughs) yeah it was my light bulb and um I used to work shift work and I had a three-hour break and I used to run home and watch the Oprah show at lunchtime and then run back to work and it was three adopted girls on the stage on on stools I can remember it vividly and two out of the three were just bawling their eyes out going all I want to know is medical history you know we have great families we you know we're in good families and we just want to know our genetics and I went oh I never really thought about it that way and then I again I thought of her age and I went well you know I can't keep that from her so if that's all she wants then I'm happy to give that so I lifted the veto
1: yeah yeah so six weeks later mm. you get a phone call can you tell yeah. us about that
0: oh my god I was washing up was, I was washing up during the dishes looking out the window watching my five-year-old and two-year-old play outside and I get this phone call hi can I speak to Vivian Gittins and I went oh yes (laughs) and and she she said I think you're my my birth mother and I just started laughing hysterically going this has got to be a joke but at the same time I realized well no one really knows so this can't be a joke and then I just fell to the floor and that's when I said, what was what did I call you? And she said, you name me Sheree. And that's when I realised, oh, my God, it's really her. Yeah. And so we just spoke. There was no Facebook then. And we spoke for hours and hours and hours on the phone. And we posted letters to each other and we posted photos and, you know, waiting for those photos and those letters. It, yeah, it was quite intense.
1: I actually think it was a blessing to us back then before the days of social media and so of course it did gives us the option i didn't end up using it unfortunately but it did give us the option of slowing things down a little bit yeah um so we didn't just race to that meeting yeah. um or find out too much information or external mm. stuff too quickly but mm. then having said that you know social media has also been very helpful with yeah finding people in a way that we didn't have back then yeah it's amazing how quick yeah yeah so you did go on to meet your daughter. Can you tell us about that?
0: Yes, I did. So uh, it was a few months after she rang, we decided to meet and we met at Queen's Park in Ipswich.
1: Mm-hmm. And A beautiful setting. It, so, yeah, yeah,
0: and it was like in public, of course, because you need a public space, open space. And it was one of the best times of my life looking at her and again we looked at each other's hands and we looked at each other's toes and because she was still young and and no more searching no more wondering because I would always after she was born I was always checking prams looking in people's prams going oh I wonder if that's her I wonder if that's her and and then you hear about the people who are raised together around the corner and and Wherever I lived, I would always be looking at children around. You know, if she was five, six, seven, eight, I would always be looking at children that age, wondering,
1: "Are you my daughter?" It never happened. She was completely interstate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you you placed a baby for adoption, but you yeah. met a young woman. Yes. What's the complexity of that in in oh. your mind?
0: It is so complex, and I talk about this often with um, mothers that haven't reunited as yet, because in our mind we want to, we're, we're wanting to meet up with that child and reconnect with the child, but the child's an adult, a young adult, old adult, mature adult, and yet I still yearn to be the mother, like the nurturing mother, you know, come to me first, type thing you know i should know this i'm your mother or i've got advice for you i'm your mother but i so did not so this is where i i talk about where do i fit so as a a mother who's lost a child to adoption it's more complex than you think it's not as black and white as reuniting with your child yeah so much more than that
1: yeah and it's vice versa as an adoptee I yeah that's, that's the strange thing too is meeting your mother but also a stranger Mm. and you're meeting as an adult not a baby but Mm. there is that baby inside of you that's looking to heal so it's Mm. it's incredibly complex from both sides really is it really is yeah
0: but there is that i believe that innate connection
1: Mm. whether it's
0: good or bad you still feel that innate connection
1: Yeah. I often say too that if you could bottle that, that feeling when you mm. first reunite and that mm. that high that you can get, that some of us, yeah. get. I mean, yeah. it's the best drug on earth. It's yeah. <laughs> Sometimes Real I is. wish I had someone to grab off the shelf. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it really is. Yeah. So, what has this reunion brought to your life? For me,
0: it's brought closure because that now I know who she is where she is that she's happy she's married and I have the most amazing granddaughter <laughs> who I'm very close to and I love with all my heart so yeah, yeah it's so much good I and mean, it's still um, it's still challenging don't get me wrong because I've actually now known her longer than I haven't known her yeah so I'm blessed that way and it still has its challenges yeah. Do you find, was- sorry, go mm-hmm. on. I was just going to say, I'm, however, I'm grateful.
1: Yeah. Either way. Do you find sometimes too, um, I have in my own reunion story where sometimes the extended family, so cousins, mm-hmm. brothers, uncles, um, sometimes those relationships are, are far less difficult to navigate or not not difficult, it's probably the wrong word, but there's some there's something that doesn't exist between you and them that does exist between you and your mother or your daughter mm-hmm. um so sometimes those relationships with say a granddaughter or something they can just you know them from the beginning so it's just yes
0: such a,
1: yeah. yeah that's true it's just like a little less complex sometimes isn't it
0: yeah yeah it's a different bonding yeah yeah you have the opportunity to bond and to know and
1: yeah watch them grow yeah So in our very first episode of Adopt Perspective, Jane and I discussed the terms that people who are affected Mm -hmm. by adoption use for their biological and adoptive family, such as Mm -hmm. adoptive and birth parents, or even how we refer to ourselves and Mm -hmm. how those names can soften or change over time, or even just depending on who you're speaking to. Mm -hmm. In your book and in our conversations, you refer to yourself as a birth mother. Mm -hmm. I was wondering what your thoughts are around this. Yeah, good question. Thanks. Now, when I first wrote
0: my book, I had really very little or no connection or knowledge of my predecessors. So when when I call myself a birth mother, I, I please, I didn't, you know, no disrespect to the women who fought very hard, who lost children in the 40s, 50s, 60s, who were, their children were called bastards and 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 they are. Uh, what's the word they are horrified by calling being called a birth mother for me I when my daughter phoned me and she said I think you're my birth mother I never even thought of myself as a birth mother I didn't never even even heard that before and then but however to me it made sense yes I did birth her I didn't raise her so yes I'm still her mother So birth mother, I was okay with. I'm still okay with that. However, I do respect the mothers who are not. And I also find professionally and also I talk to some mums from America as well and they're called birth mothers. And when I meet new people, when I'm at parties or at functions and if I'm in the mood about because when they say, how many children do you have? And then I say three. And then they say, How old you how old are they? And then you've got to say, oh, 42. <laughs> and then you can see them kind of, you know, tick, tick, ticking and trying to work it out. And, and I'll say, Yes, I actually lost my first child to adoption. And then if I'm in the mood, I will go into that. And so when you're trying to explain to some somebody about the, uh, the adoption aspect saying that i'm the birth mother makes sense to them yeah and there's no disrespect on me i find it just helps me explain the story so they can get the adopted parents and the birth mother and yeah yeah sort of thing
1: The adoption of your daughter came towards the tail end of what we now refer to as the forced adoption era and the experiences and perspectives of of this of mothers from this time can vary greatly and of Mm. course in your support work you're going to have met mothers who placed um, children for adoption outside of that era Mm. this is the same in our adoptee community we have many similar experiences however every story is unique I guess what I want to ask is what mm-hmm. do you find are the commonalities amongst you all and, and how do you all support each other even when your experiences and perspectives might differ?
0: You know, that, that's a really good question. I find as mothers, at the end of the day, losing a child is what we have in common. Yeah. So when it comes to the terminology, it's... It really is a really small part and I do also apologise in my group if I offend anybody, if I use the wrong terminology. I do believe that and I'm actually meeting more mums who have who lost their ch- children in the 1980s and after and they're the ones that I would really like to meet as well and bring out in the open and, and support. And because there are many of us, we just don't quite know and we are the end of an era. We don't, I, I actually, when I hear the other mothers' stories, it's absolutely heartbreaking and heart-wrenching. And this also helps me share experiences with adoptees who are struggling with the, you know, the thought of connecting with their parents. I guess a lot, uh, for me, I think some adoptees may think that their parents don't want them because sometimes they've been told that by their adoptive parents, you know, like, oh, your mother doesn't want you. However, it's not like that. And their stories are really quite interesting and their stories actually make me stronger. You know, I, I feel like they really, they're the ones that we're fighting for. You know, we don't want this to happen again. And, you know, my story is just one story. There's just, and no story's the same. However, they're similar. And what I find with these women is we feel this. our feelings and our thoughts are very similar regardless of the decades apart we are. And to actually just sit in a room and Talk openly and honestly, and just know when you look into that person's face, they get you. Where, when you're trying to talk to somebody, a friend or a friend's friend or a counselor, even that has, you know, an outside counselor that doesn't have any adoption experience, they're kind of a bit blank. You know, they don't get it. They just don't get where your soul's coming from. And, and I, it's just so warming to be around those women and sometimes they can sit with you for 12 months and not say a word and then all of a sudden they'll open up to you just randomly and just to have that trust from them and just to know that it's not going to leave that room and you can just have a cup of tea and just be you and that's what I I, you know I find for myself I can go I can sit and, and I'm this is real Viv you know this is a real me you know warts and all this is you've got me you know i don't have to pretend or hide or you know yeah do anything and that's what i wanted when you know i was looking for support when i was really struggling and there was really very little around and i lived on the south side i was Working full time. I couldn't attend, you know, help during the week, during the day. There was no weekend help. And yeah. Yeah. So that's when I thought, you know what? When I had reunited, I thought, you know what? There's got to be other women out there. Why don't I start a group, just a social group? That's all we are as a social group. We're not a formal group. It's just a social group to have a cuppa, a chat, and, you know, catch up. Yeah.
1: And I have to say to Vivian that like just being on this and podcast and slowly getting to know you through different events and, and mm. chats we've had in, in the lead up to this, some of my greatest healing has come from um, talking to um, mothers who've lost children through adoption as well and, and hearing mm. that different perspective because there's a period of time in your healing where it's very much about your perspective and then there's a period where you want to start looking out and and being able to hear it stories like yours is very important because these are conversations I would actually find difficult to have with my own um mother Mm. but I can have them with you and and it's not so fraught, and I can hear your story and um And so it's really healing even for adoptive people and other people Mm. who are affected by adoption just to hear your story as well. Mm. Thanks,
0: Joe. And and yes, and and likewise. And it's funny because when I first started my support group journey, I was only all about the mothers because I went, oh, I only want to deal and support with mothers because it's always about the adoptees, (laughs) you know. And then, no, I don't want to hear their stories because it's always about them. However, it's very important, I've learned, to actually talk to adoptees because I have learned so much from them. So even what you have to say to me helps me, even if it's just a small little piece or something that you've said. And because you actually said the same thing to me, and I went, "Well, who would have thought that adoptees would have thought it was all about us?" You know, like <laughs> <laughs> so. I, so it, it's really quite amazing when you do start opening up that channel and just being open and even you you don't even have to if you if you're out there and you want to go to a support group or you want to you know for the likes of come see jigsaw and you're not really sure about it you know you can attend and not say anything you know because that's what it's all about because you learn so much by sitting and listening yeah. as well. So even if you come to my group and don't say anything, you still give me a voice because I know you're there and, you know, I know that we can help you. If it's not me, I know it's the lady that you that's sitting next to you. And you know what? I've had ladies make new friendships from my group and that is, like, so powerful that they can actually connect and continue on having a friendship outside the meeting. Yeah. You know, and and for me,
1: that's what it's all about. So you first published your book in 2017, I think. Yes. Um, I'm Roughly. often... I'm a writer, but I'm often reluctant to write and make public mm. my feelings about adoption because mm. they are constantly evolving and, you mm. know, something I would have shared 10 or 15 years ago would be quite different to what I would share today or even yeah. five years ago, sometimes 10 minutes ago, depending on my yeah. mood, yeah. but um, they no doubt would have changed. And so yeah. even though it's only like, you know, four or so years that have passed since you published, I wonder if you would revise your revise your book and republish it, what, if anything, would you change? Funny you should ask that, because yes, I am revising it and I have started
0: <laughs> writing another. Um, I guess what I I wouldn't change anything that I, I would add, I guess, to my to my book. I would write about not trying so hard and just letting just letting be what is as is, is. And for mums, oh, for me. I, You know, because I jumped in thinking I had expectations. So my biggest advice would be don't have expectations, you know. um, It's really good advice. Yeah, just don't have any expectations. Then you won't get as hurt or let down or when challenges come. And then when when challenges do come, uh, because a challenge can come one year after reunion, two years, 20 years after reunion, and then you find yourself in a heap again. However, I, my advice, and I've said this too when I talk, is you know what? This stuff happens with normal families. We just have the adoption tag to it.
1: Vivian, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. I've really enjoyed sharing this time together getting to know you and and just hearing your perspective on things and thank you so much for that work that you do helping others because I know so many um, mothers have benefited from just coming together in community and um, mm. like you said and just being able to be themselves so yeah thank you so much for that
0: you're welcome
1: And if you'd like to find out where you can get hold of Vivian's book uh, or more information um, about You Gave Me A Voice support group, then go to the episode notes page of the Jigsaw Queensland website and we'll have some information there. And we also have a copy of um, Vivian's book in our library that's available for borrowing. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, do you have a story that you'd like to share with us? If you'd like to be interviewed for the podcast, jump onto the main podcast page of the Jigsaw Queensland website and complete the prospective guest form that you'll find there. And note that Adopt Perspective can be listened to by people all over the world. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Adopt Perspective podcast. If you'd like to find out more, go to the podcast page on www dot jigsawqueensland dot com, and you'll find a wealth of information and resources on the website. If you reside in Queensland, you can reach Jigsaw Queensland's Forced Adoption Support Service on toll free one eight hundred two one zero three one three, or you can call Jigsaw on zero seven double three five eight double six double six. If you live in another state of Australia, you can still call the Forced Adoption Support Service number and your call will be answered by the Forced Adoption Support Service in the state that you're calling from. In every other state, Relationships Australia operates this service. A big thank you to Matt Sparrow for composing and recording our original theme music. Until next time, I'm Jo Sparrow saying farewell from Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. Thank mm-hmm. you.